powers the D Daily, Puck's podcast focused on the intersection of Wall Street, Washington, Silicon Valley, and Hollywood, and the players who run it all. I'm Peter Hamby. It's Friday, September 23rd, and today Tara Palmieri is here to talk about one of the biggest mysteries in Washington. Who will succeed Nancy Pelosi as leader of the House Democrats if she retires after this election cycle? Tara brings the Capitol Hill rumor mill right here to the powers that be. And later on, Alex Bigler is here for another round of Feedback Friday. We talk about how we choose our topics for the show, why we talk about CNN so much at Puck. Sorry, guys. And because it's that time of the year, we reveal some of our least favorite campaign donation emails. We'll hear about all that and more on today's episode of Powers That Be. Happy Friday, Powers That Be listeners. I'm joined today by Tara Palmieri to talk about somebody with another Italian-sounding last name, Nancy Pelosi. (laughs) How you doing, Tara? Yeah, we both have names that start with P and end in I. (laughs) (laughs) So first question before we get into Nancy Pelosi's succession, who will follow her as leader of the Democrats in the House? Is it actually a sure thing that she's retiring after this election cycle? Because that's the chatter. That's what everyone in democratic politics expects. But uh, is she riding off into the San Francisco sunset for sure? Well, increasingly, it looks like that's happening. But there's always got to be like a disclaimer, a little asterisk after all this reporting that she could decide at the end of the day that she will not relinquish the title. And she has that much power that she might be able to pull it off again, right? I mean, even the fact that I'm writing about how she has her hand in succession just shows you how much power she has in this party. And yeah, I mean, there's a possibility she doesn't retire, but all signs point to the fact that she is. Sources that have spoken to her say that she's just really worried about leaving behind a divided caucus. And the fact that she's having those conversations with her allies and she's talking to people about what role do you want in the next Congress? It means she's trying to shape it. And for her, she sees it as she wants to have a big table and make sure that the Democrats don't have the same sort of divisions that the Republicans had, a la, you know, John Boehner, Paul Ryan, and probably divisions you're going to see in the next Congress too, if Kevin McCarthy is speaker. So plus she's the biggest fundraiser too, after all. And that's a lot of power to have within the Congress. Yeah. I mean, if you talk to um, like Barack Obama would certainly say this, like Nancy Pelosi has been in Congress for 36, 35, 36 years, 82 She's trusted by Democrats to get shit done. And like that's something that we've you've heard if you've covered politics any at any time in the last like 15, 20 years. Like Pelosi counts the votes. She knows how to move legislation. She just is a great inside player and Democrats trust her. But that's like the Obama Democrat, Biden Democrat side of the aisle. Are there actual difficulties with the sort of squad-ish progressives? It doesn't feel like they're caucus, their wing of the party in the House is as big as the Tea Party was under John Boehner or as big as sort of like MAGA slice of the party certainly is with with Paul Ryan and and Kevin McCarthy. Like, are there enough rabble rousers there on the left for her to be worried? I don't think so. But I do think there is just a feeling that like she doesn't want to see everyone pissing outside of the tent. I feel like the squad lost some juice after the BBB bill failed. We'll see how this all shakes out as well. I mean, it looks like the Democrats will lose probably 
in the House. So this, we're talking about like the next minority leader, probably not the next speaker, right? But I think there's just a feeling that that group can grow. You don't know how the political winds will change. Pramila Jayapal, who is a member of the squad, who is the chair of the Progressive Caucus, who led the conversations about BBB and the infrastructure coupling. She was able to build her profile through those conversations with the White House. And even though she was largely unsuccessful, I think there's a part of her that thinks that she deserves a seat at the table in some sort of leadership role. I was told that she's reached out to Hakeem Jeffries, who is kind of seen as the inevitable for the next leader of the party. Um, He would be the first African-American member. He's from Brooklyn. There is a sort of inevitability about these races, these leadership races. There's also a lot of, um, you know, just who's the most popular kid in class. And she sort of said, hey, I'll bring the progressives along if you give me some sort of seat at the table to Hakeem Jeffries. Her office denied they had this conversation. But when I asked them, like, would she want a leadership role? They were kind of ambivalent about it and not ambivalent. They were careful to say she just wants to win back the Congress, but it was definitely not a, no, she's not interested. Just to back up a second. So your reporting suggests right now that Pelosi would want Hakeem Jeffries of New York to succeed her as leader. I don't actually think that's true. I don't think she necessarily wants, I don't think Hakeem is her favorite. I think she's just looking at what the cards are that are in front of her. Gotcha, okay. And Hakeem is actively whipping And Hakeem is actively, you know, giving out Junior's cheesecakes to everyone to try to get them on his side. That's what I was going to ask. So, like, let's list who might be in line after Pelosi. So, Hakeem Jeffries sounds like he's doing the work. I just Googled Junior's cheesecake. This is a Flatbush Avenue um, restaurant chain, I guess, is known for fantastic cheesecakes. I like that. I would accept a gift as a journalist from Hakeem Jeffries. If you're listening, please send me a cheesecake from uh, (laughs) Brooklyn to... Venice. Oh my God. Yeah. Okay. And then you have Steny Hoyer, who's like the ultimate boring white guy, but he's been there as like Pelosi's sidekick for so long. Waiting his turn. Yeah. He, he's got, he can't just like happily step aside. He's a nice guy. He's also done a lot of favors for people. He fundraises for members. A big part of the reason these people end up in leadership is because of their fundraising prowess, unless they can claim to have control over an unruly caucus. Right. And then you've got Jim Clyburn who doesn't want to go anywhere. And there's one thing, he's the number three right now in leadership. Here's the one thing about um, Clyburn and Hoyer. They're both widows. They're both not ready to step down even though they're in their 80s. Um, And I feel like they think that they've been waiting their turn. I've heard that, you know, ceremonial titles could be created for them. But from people who have spoken to Pelosi, she thinks that they all need to step down together. And she thinks that it would be sexist for her to go first and to be the woman who goes and that they stay. Yeah, there's a bit of a dynamic where she thinks if I'm going to bow out for the next generation, you boys better come down with me too. So that's definitely a dynamic that's playing out. She also has her own favorites. Like she really loves Catherine Clark, who is assistant speaker. That was a role that was created by Pelosi for Chris Van Hollen years ago. She also really likes Adam Schiff, who's a prolific fundraiser, who's been really raising a ton of cash this cycle. Adam Schiff would love to be speaker. I don't know if he'd win the popularity contest. No, he feels like a guy who's good at playing the outside game and not necessarily the inside game. Like, yes, he's had some key posts and committee posts and like some roles in a lot of these Trump investigations, but like you cannot turn on cable news without seeing Adam Schiff, you know? And like yeah. he seems a little thirsty for the attention. And I can see some people getting a little cranky with him yeah. inside the caucus. Oh, totally. And here's another thing that's coming at Adam Schiff. Kevin McCarthy has said he's going to take him off the Intel committee where he's chair in retribution for taking Marjorie Taylor Greene off the committee. So he might be without a committee, a backbencher, 
not a lot to do. People are saying he's got his eye on statewide office, or at least he's exploring it in California. Joe Neguse is um, sort of whipping. He's from Colorado, right? Yes, from Colorado. And you've got Pete Algalar. He's another kind of rising star in the party. And he he's likely going to want to be at the table. And he brings along the Hispanic caucus, which matters. He's from California. It's kind of a matter of getting these forces in line. I think the feeling is with the Pramila Jayapal move, did she give the leader cover with the Progressive Caucus by adding her to the table? I do think that Jayapal has a lot of street cred on the left, but really did herself some favors by jumping in and negotiating in very good faith some not so likable <laughs> Democratic senators on the left in the Biden White House and trying to get some, get, you know, work within the guardrails of what you can do to get something done rather than throw darts from the sidelines and send out cranky emails raising money from your donors. I do think like Jayapal is like respected among like the, the caucus at large in a way that other members of the squad might not. Okay. If you're listening, Jayapal, you can also send Peter a cheesecake. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever you have up there in uh, Seattle that you can send down here, like some salmon. Um, <laughs> one last thing to ask you though, like it seems like an undercurrent of, of Pelosi stepping aside, you just said is the generational change aspect of, of this. And I remember Man, you probably remember this too, like eight, 10 years ago, like Luke Russert caught so much shit for like asking Pelosi and like a bunch of like Dem leadership people and some presser, like, aren't you guys too old? And they were old then. Yeah. Now Nancy Pelosi is 82. She understands that you do need someone like Hakeem, for example, like as the face of Democrats in the House. Like you see these like side by side photos all the time of Pelosi and Schumer. And you're just like, not that. Kevin McCarthy is and McConnell are dynamic in any way, but like Dems are supposed to be the like young dynamic party. And you see these two people leading the party and you're just like, yeesh. Right. And Biden. Um, so she does understand that they need younger leadership, it seems. Yes, totally. I've heard some people say that, you know, she has her favorite. She loves Catherine Clark. She loves Adam Schiff. There's also uh, a bit of a geographical issue, some might say. Having Hakeem Jeffries and Chuck Schumer be leaders of both caucuses from the exact same district, basically, <laughs> Brooklyn. Um, so some people might say that should give Catherine Clark an advantage or maybe we need another, another person from California. Or someone from like a purple state or a red state. How about someone like that? Shut up, Like Peter. Democrats are going those <laughs> <I'm> places. <joking. laughs> All right, Tara, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. When we come back, Alex Bigler is here with this week's Feedback Friday. Hey, Puck listeners, as a reminder, in celebration of our one-year anniversary, we're offering a rare discount off our subscriptions, 21% off. That's because we launched in 2021, and it's been an incredible year since. So go sign up now. The link is in the show notes. I promise it's even better than The Powers That Be, which, as you know, is the greatest show on the internet. Welcome back, everybody. It's time for Feedback Friday. It's been a while since I've done a Feedback Friday with Alex Bigler, but here we are. How you doing? I am doing excellently. Um, a, it's great to see you. It's been a long time. And B, as we speak, I'm looking out the window of this very tiny sort of phone booth situation in our New York office, and I see Dylan Byers, who is here uh, visiting New York, which is probably why I've got this smile ear to ear on my face. Um. 
hopefully you can get him to shake you a little cocktail or something. Uh, that's like, that's his best asset other than his handsomeness. Well, he did actually tell me kind of a wild story, um, which I am excited to share with you because it's so crazy. And I don't know okay. if he's told you this story. I know that he, you're on, he's on the pod with you frequently, but he, mm-hmm. he just told me the story about, did you know that there's like a secondary puck market? Where no. some of his sources, or at least at least one particular source that he told me, not their name, he was very professional, uh-huh. is like sending screenshots of our work to their friends and then Venmoing their friends to charge them for that screenshot of an article. That's the craziest thing I think I've ever heard. That's like, okay, so like we're a subscription business. Obviously, we would love it if you paid. But like every now and then I'm gonna if I send an article to a friend or something. And also we have that tool, which is really cool, where you can gift an article. But it's like I would never Venmo someone for sending that's crazy. I assume that person has disposable income also if they're like subscribing to Buck. You don't need it's always the richest people who Venmo your friends <laughs> yes. for a screenshot. But it's that's like exactly right. first of all, we're running a sale right now. Like take advantage. If you're the person who is getting Venmoed by your friend for a screenshot of a Puck article, like Please, I'm begging you, take advantage of our anniversary sale. Come on, Zaz. I know it's you, Zaz. That's so funny. (laughs) I'm just kidding. But that's why it's great when Dylan comes to town, because he's got all sorts of stories like that. Um, He really does got good gossip. Well, if you're interested in taking advantage of our anniversary sale and do not want to Venmo your friends anymore, uh, check out the show notes today and tomorrow. The sale actually ends on Sunday. So... um, now is a great time to take take advantage of it. Who designed our little like Instagram graphic uh, with the cocktail shaker? I'm so glad that you asked that question because uh, one of the things I wanted to bring to Feedback Friday was a note that we got from a reader who said how eye-catching our design was, especially um, the work that's been out on Instagram. So shout out to Isabella, who is a brand manager on my team. She does all of Puck's assets in-house and like... I. I couldn't be more thrilled with them. She makes it easy to do this stuff. Like not every journalist is great at social media and you know, some, some are, but then it's like you send out this like custom graphic that like is easily posted on your Instagram story, snap story, whatever. Bravo. Making it easy. So I've got a lot to talk to you about in particular. Um, some reader questions that came in, but, um, also questions that that sparked for me after listening to you on the podcast for for a couple of weeks now and not having an opportunity to talk to you. So we got an email from a listener this week who's also a subscriber. He was very curious about how you and John think about what gets top billing on Media Mondays, which I thought was a really interesting question. Media Mondays is, and I say this in a great way, like the easiest podcast for me to do because I've been emailing and or talking to and or texting John about random shit in the media since like 2016. Um, and I didn't know him, but like a mutual friend, Rob Solitterman, like connected us at one point. John got me writing for The Hive when he was at Vanity Fair. Um, and so, I mean, a big reason I'm here is just that John and I share a lot of the same perspectives on media we just get along pretty well uh, and share a lot of the same perspectives. And so he might text me right before and be like, we got to talk about Amazon on <laughs> NFL. And I'm like, yes, dude, yes, let's talk about that. Um, b- because I think we 
share a lot of the same media diet and, you know, we're reading a lot of the same things. Good chemistry plus a um, good understanding of the shifting sands of media. So this reader also pointed out and asked, which is a fair thing to point out, is that we talk a lot about CNN. And he wanted to ask, or he really wanted to understand why we view everything happening at CNN is a leading indicator of the direction that cable news is heading, full stop. Oh, that's interesting. This is probably more of a question for Dylan, who will be more articulate than I will. Um, I care about CNN because I think that having, it's not perfect at all, but you know, I think I'd rather have CNN than just like obnoxiously partisan media telling people what they want to hear. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think CNN, as we've discussed a million times, reveals its value when there's a hurricane yep. in Puerto Rico, when there's an invasion of Ukraine. I used to work there and Dylan used to work there. <laughs> and yeah. So and, and Tara used to work there back in the day too. So there's a lot of just like inside knowledge and insight that we have. And two, I mean, like CNN became part of the story, unfortunately, during the Trump years. And so lots of people out there have opinions about CNN. I think there's enough meat there to a story about what's going on inside CNN that merits us talking about it mm-hmm. as much as we do. And it's going to keep fleshing itself out over the next year. Um, and just to circle back, I mean, like, we were also kind of lucky in a way at Puck. Like, we started, mm-hmm. and you had the, like, Jeff Zucker, Chris Cuomo drama at CNN. Mm-hmm. Um, you had uh, Russia making noise about invading Ukraine. And, you know, all of a sudden, they invade Ukraine, and we have Julia. And Will Smith, like, slaps Chris Rock. <laughs> we have Matt. And, you know, uh, the NFL tries to silence the NFL halftime show. And we have Eric and like we, you know, with CNN, we have Dylan. And so we've hit these like really big stories and met them with really great reporters. And the CNN story, it just isn't going anywhere. And I I do think it's important, even though we talk about how not that many people watch it compared to maybe other channels or just how media behavior happens now. But I I do think watching what CNN is doing, everyone has an opinion on it, even if you don't haven't watched CNN in months, like people like talking about it. Well, I'm going to take advantage um, selfishly to ask a question that I have just, again, kind of hearkening to something you just said, but also what what I hear when I listen to you talk about it is you often talk about the value of CNN's ability to do on the ground news um, and especially like reporters on campaign trail. And I was sort of reflecting on this and realizing I don't actually know anything about what that job entails. Like, what it means to be a reporter on the ground on a campaign trail. And I kind of, I wanted to know if you would be open to sharing with our listeners like what that experience is like. What are the types of stories these reporters try to get? Like what's the special skill set that they need to do it well? I know nothing about it. So that's a whole nother podcast that would last five hours. I have two documents, content pieces for people to look at, Okay. One is a um, paper, uh, a study I wrote when I did a fellowship at Harvard's Shorenstein Center on media politics and public policy. Sounds dorky. (laughs) After the 2012 campaign, when I was a campaign reporter for CNN covering the Republicans and ultimately Mitt Romney, my boss at CNN, Sam Feist, was nice enough to let me apply for and take this six-month fellowship at Harvard where I got to like write and think about how technology had changed political journalism, specifically campaign coverage. And I wrote this paper. You can Google Hamby Shorenstein Center. It's called Did Twitter Kill the Boys on the Bus? Searching for a Better Way to Cover a Campaign. Okay, even if you don't care about politics, 
uh, it really helped me think through some challenges and opportunities in political media. And it's, I, I say all of this to say, there's so many anecdotes in here. Mm-hmm. I interviewed like almost 100 people from Chuck Todd and John King to John Dickerson and Maggie Haberman and the late, great David Carr. And along with like interviewing a lot of campaign reporters and they just told me these like lots of little colorful stories. And I tried to write it like a pretty long magazine article. So mm-hmm. there's that. Okay. We'll tweet that out for, for anyone interested. Tweet that out. Lots of stories about all the crap you eat and the kind of stories you cover and blah, 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 blah. Um, the other thing is this might be lost to the internet, but my friend Scott Conroy and I, and Scott, who's now a screenwriter, he, he left journalism to develop the show that we co-wrote together called mm. Embeds, which is about campaign reporters covering a campaign. And it was bought by a now defunct streaming service. <laughs> As if there's a, the world is littered with those called Go90, owned by Verizon. And they developed a six-episode comedy series that we wrote. Um, the New York Times reviewed it. A bunch of pieces wrote about it. And we basically tried to do a sort of coming-of-age comedy through the eyes of young campaign reporters. And I think mm-hmm. one of the best parts of the comedy series is that it just has a lot of realism and detail about like living on a bus in mm-hmm. Iowa, sleeping at Holiday Inn Expresses, and drinking shitty beer and going to Applebee's and like watching candidates say the same stupid shit over and over again every day. Sounds chic. We filmed it on location in Iowa, and it's, it's fucking great. So those are two artifacts from campaign world uh, that I can point to. But I would, I mean, I need to do an entire separate podcast series about how campaign political reporters live their lives. Okay, last thing I'll say going into the weekend, I've realized that we're entering um, campaigning season for politicians, which means my inbox is starting to get flooded with some of the absolute worst email subject lines I have ever seen in my entire life. I think the one I got yesterday was, I'm asking you personally, which I, I just, please, please don't ask me personally. Do you have any any greatest hits of the worst email subject lines in campaign season? Yeah, I mean, like, I put my my name on political email lists when I started covering politics like 10 years ago. So who knows where my email is? <laughs> and I'm just like always unsubscribing. The ones that are the dumbest for me uh, are the emails that say like, hey, it's Barack. Or like, hey, it's <laughs> Michelle. It's like, no, it's not fucking you. And I would just be interested to know what the open rates are on those at this point. Because like, it's obviously not you. I mean, those those like almost offend me more than the like, hair on fire, like, yeah. the socialists are coming to take our guns. <laughs> Give Mr. Trump $5 right now. Because it's just like, okay, that's so stupid. Who actually thinks that Barack Obama is like emailing them directly to chip into the DNC? I legitimately got one last season where the subject line was, you up? And I almost lost my mind. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> like, that may have been the thing that actually put me over the edge. So That is funny. You were not, in fact, up. I was not up. No, I'm very old. I read it the next day. Um, But anyway, Peter, it was great to see you. We should do this more often. Please, let's do it. NL Central for life. Love it. Have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you soon. You too. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of The Powers That Be. As a reminder, The Powers That Be is the official podcast of Puck. We'd like to thank Ben Landy, Liz Goff, and Alex Bigler for their editorial and production guidance. If you like what you hear on this podcast, please share with a friend. It really helps us keep delivering the inside scoop that only Puck can offer. You can visit us at puck.news and on Twitter at Puck News. I'm Peter Hamby. See you next week.
This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. Please listen, rate, review, and follow all episodes wherever you get your podcasts. The Powers That Be Daily is executive produced by John Kelly, co-founder of Puck, and Chris Corcoran, chief content officer and founding partner of Cadence 13.